0: John chapter 20. We're going to read from verse 19. This is God's Word. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them, and He said, "'Peace be with you.' After He said this, He showed them His hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, "'Peace be with you. "'As the Father has sent me, I am sending you.'" And with that, he breathed on them and said, "'Receive the Holy Spirit. "'If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. "'If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven.'" Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, Which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us his word. Well, let's turn together to John chapter 20, those verses we read earlier, page 1089, if you've got a Pew Bible wonder how you think you'll be uh, remembered, what, what names or words you think might be associated with uh, your name in the future. What will people think of whenever they think of you? I'm sure we'd all like to have things associated with our name, some aspect of our character perhaps, kindness, generosity, some achievement. Oh, that was The guy who did this or did that scored that goal at that particular football match, whatever it might be. Uh, She was the one who did this or did that. Well, if we all have sort of dreams like that, then we can spare a thought for Thomas. Thomas, 2,000 years later, doubting Thomas. Probably not what he thought whenever he was a teenager and was looking ahead and thinking, what would I really like to be known for in my life? Doubting Thomas was probably not high on his list. And yet whenever we see this story tonight, we'll see that he doesn't stay doubting Thomas. We probably shouldn't keep on referring to him in that way. It's not really fair on him. But uh, he, he was changed from a doubter to a worshiper in the most incredible, incredible way. And whenever we read the, the book of Acts, we find that he takes his place alongside the other de- apostles, and they spread the good news of Jesus Christ all over the world. And There's a fairly reliable tradition, you possibly know this, that he was the one who went outside the Roman Empire, the only one of the apostles, in fact, who went outside the Roman Empire, went to the uh, western coast of India and uh, founded churches there. There are still churches there that uh, consciously look back in their history to Thomas as being their founder. So, uh, uh, perhaps uh, there's a There's a a nugget of truth in that, that that Thomas is the one who who went and took the good news way, way uh, to the east in that way. Thomas put his doubts behind him, went on to have a, a life that really counted for God. I hope this story will be a real encouragement for us as we look at it. We don't hear all that much about Thomas in the rest of the Gospels. The first time we read anything significant about him is in John chapter 11 when Uh, Jesus is going to go to visit Martha and Mary, whose brother Lazarus had died. And they lived in Bethany, quite close to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, even at that stage, was the hotbed of opposition to Jesus. It was where the religious authorities were. Things were getting pretty tough for Jesus at that point. And uh, Jesus says, let's go to, to Bethany. And Thomas pipes up with a sort of a resigned loyalty. And he says, let us also go that we may die with him. He, he really thinks that to, to go that close to Jerusalem is probably, is probably to put our, them, themselves at real risk. So he was loyal to Jesus. No question about that. But maybe he was the sort of problem person who tended to see the problems. Well, off we go to, 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 to Bethany. We'll never get out of this one. He was maybe a sort of a glass half-empty person. The next time we, we hear about him, is at the Last Supper, when, when Jesus has just shared those wonderful words, do not let your hearts be troubled, trust in God, trust also in me. Uh, and uh, Thomas says, Lord, we, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? So, so here he's, he's prepared to speak his mind when he doesn't understand. He's maybe a little bit of a literalist. He, he, he's not all that imaginative, perhaps, as far as faith is concerned. M- maybe he's by nature a little bit skeptical. It's, it's difficult to, to build big suggestions about somebody's character on the basis of just two incidents, but perhaps that gives us a bit of a a pointer as to the sort of person that Thomas was. But certainly it is this incident in John chapter 20 where we see a great work of God taking place within his life. Three words that we're going to use to navigate through this passage tonight, skeptic, servant, and sign didn't think it was worth putting those in PowerPoint. Three very simple words tonight, skeptic, servant, and sign. Thomas was all of those things. He was a skeptic, he was a servant, and he became a sign. Those are three great titles. I'm very, very proud of those. They belong to Kevin DeYoung, and uh, uh, we're going we're to use those uh, this evening to navigate through this passage. So, Thomas the, the skeptic, first of all. He's synonymous with doubt But whenever we think about doubt, doubt is a a term that covers a whole range of different issues and different problems. And we need to try and distinguish between those, because what, in a sense, was the solution for Thomas's doubt might not be the solution for our doubt if we find ourselves in a different situation. So we need to be careful of thinking that Thomas is the answer to every situation of doubt. People can doubt for all sorts of reasons. Let's think about that. Sometimes doubt can, become, can come because of a lack of information. There's just something that we don't really know. So someone is unaware of a particular aspect of Christian truth, and they find themselves very unsure. I I think, for example, of a young person 20 years ago who who, uh, was really quite agitated about a certain issue and and, and spoke to me about it, and and he said, you know, I'm really quite worried that that if I confess my sin and and, and then I, I sin again and I die before I confess that sin, what's going to happen to me? And we were able to explain how God's forgiveness in Christ's work, God forgave sins past, present, and future. And and even those sins that that we confess are are only a small part of what we're forgiven for. And so whenever we are saved, we are saved in in totality and so on, and He could be assured. So His doubts were, were, were solved, as it were, by information, by someone explaining the way of God more adequately to Him. Some of our doubts can be addressed like that. Sometimes, our doubts come as a result of what Don Carson, as he speaks about this, what Don Carson calls rites of passage. So, especially a young person who grows up in a Christian home. This has been the case for, for I know, some of us. A young person grows up in a Christian home, and they believe from their early days, and then maybe at a stage in, in late school or later teens or after that, the faith that once seemed so clear to them starts to become a little bit more clouded. It, all sorts of questions start to arise. And they wrestle with the basic question, do I believe this because my parents believed it, or do I believe it because I believe it? And, and there can be just a, a real struggle there. Is this really mine? And often, not always, but but often, God's at work in that struggle to drive down faith deep into our hearts personally. And and many people who go through that particular sort of doubt, that rite of passage doubt, end up out the other side of that much more strong and confident and and really owning uh, that faith. Doesn't mean that we should Sit back and, and, and allow that to happen without effort and, and engaging with help and so on with it. But it, it is one of those things that sometimes happens. Sometimes doubt comes as a companion to physical situations, illness or exhaustion. You, you remember after Elijah is involved in the great contest on Mount Carmel, he runs ahead of Ahab's chariot, he ends up exhausted. He ends up asking all sorts of questions about God and his ways and, and how strong the work of God really is. And, and God simply, rather than arguing with him, takes him off to the brook Cherith. He feeds him with ravens. He really prescribes for him a holiday, a, a long period of rest. God knows better than we do just how our, our physical circumstances can affect our faith. And, and, and we, we, we ignore that at, at our peril. Sometimes, doubt can come as a result of moral choices. In that sense, it's sort of intentional doubt. It doesn't just come at us. We walk into it. Don Carson, again, as he talks about this, quotes Aldous Huxley. You remember Aldous Huxley, a very famous 20th century writer and philosopher and so on. And he admitted one of the... the, um, Uh, The sort of libertarians of of the 20th century, he he admitted that the doubt and skepticism that he and his friends generated was was partly fueled in order to allow them to be free from restraint and to explore all sorts of, of things that were taboo otherwise, particularly sexual liberation issues and so on. And so it's not unusual to have someone doubt or discount the Christian faith in order to justify their living in a certain way. That's really important because, and we've said this before, I I think this is important for us to grasp, sometimes people will believe what they need to believe in order to live how they want to live. They'll believe what they want to believe in order to live how they want to live. Now, now if you find yourself, if you find yourself involved in in some sort of moral compromise, there's an extra danger whenever you start to then justify that by asking all sorts of questions and saying, well, maybe, maybe God isn't really real at all because that's part of the, the devil's temptation to you, to allow you to, to bolster your, your run into sin, something we need to be really careful of. So, so, I hope you can see whenever we think about doubt, it's a very, very varied category, and, and what will address one type of doubt will not necessarily address another. So, the person who is exa- exhausted and, and plagued by doubts needs to be told to rest. But the person who is intentionally doubting in order to justify their sin needs to be told to repent, you see. So, what about Thomas then? What was his doubt? Well, his doubt was the doubt that came from an intense disappointment, an absolute disappointment as to the ways of God with him. He is terribly disappointed as to the way things have turned out with Jesus. He had invested heavily with Jesus. All of the disciples had. He'd spent three years of his life with him. He'd come through some remarkable experiences, you've got to admit it. He'd been in the boat when Jesus had calmed the storm. He'd picked up the, the pieces when the, the Jesus had fed the 5,000. He, he had listened to the Sermon on the Mount and so on. And like the other disciples, he had obviously come to understand and to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, God's anointed rescuer. But he had no understanding that Jesus was a suffering Messiah. And he didn't listen, obviously, whenever Jesus warned about his impending death and his resurrection. And perhaps he even thought that whenever Jesus was arrested, he would still then do something really spectacular and confound his enemies. Maybe even whenever he was nailed to a cross, he thought, well, this is not the end. And yet Jesus breathed his last, and all of Thomas's hopes just crumbled. Remember, on the first Easter evening, Jesus drew alongside two disciples, Cleopas and, and his companion, maybe his wife, we're not sure. And as Jesus allowed them to speak, they said, "We had hoped." that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They didn't recognize Jesus. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. In other words, our hopes are dashed. What Jesus was to us is not how he turned out to be. And, and that was exactly Thomas' experience. I had hoped he was going to be different. Their expectations were high, and Jesus doesn't deliver. And so... The first evening, that Easter evening, the other disciples meet Jesus. Thomas is not with them. And they tell Thomas about it, and he doesn't believe them. It's interesting that he's not with them. We don't really know why. Maybe he's, he's drifting to the edge of things, and he, he was saying to himself, that's it. There's no point. It's all over. That's sometimes what we're tempted to do whenever we're, we're doubting. We, we want to isolate ourselves from others. We, we think it will be easier if I'm not there. We sometimes find the confidence of other believers intimidating and even irritating. But we, we really mustn't do that. Part of the, the medicine that God seeks to bring us whenever we doubt is our brothers and sisters. So for whatever reason, Thomas, wasn't there. And he is resolute in his unbelief. He lays down conditions. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails are and put my hands into his side, I will not believe it, he says. The language he uses is very strong. I, I, I will never believe it, he said. Now, he knows these other men. He, he, he knows the woman that Jesus had appeared to, and yet he won't take it from them. He has to see for himself. Thomas the skeptic. Now, maybe Maybe some of us identify with them. Maybe we think, you know, good for you, Thomas. At least you're not going to fall for a, 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 a BT scam down the phone. You're, you're, you're a real person who looks for evidence. Our, our culture sort of values skepticism, doesn't it, now? Take everything with a pinch of salt. There's other, always another side to the story and so on. Maybe we think, you know, that's somebody that I could get on with. I'd be really comfortable with him. But what we see is that Jesus is not comfortable with where Thomas is. Jesus does not want Thomas to remain a skeptic. He doesn't want him to remain a doubter. He doesn't want him to remain an unbeliever. He has plans to change that. And don't think, don't think that, that, that if, you, if you are someone who, who who is skeptical, who really just thinks, well, you know, I'm never going to get past this. I don't believe that that's God's intention for you. Jesus doesn't want Thomas to remain a skeptic. I will not believe. He brings him to the point where he's a servant. Thomas becomes a worshiper. So, the next week, he's with the other disciples. He's obviously not totally given up or cut off his links with them. He continues to meet with the brothers occasionally. And uh, here he is, the doors are locked, and yet Jesus appears. And he knows exactly, this is rather unnerving, isn't it? He knows exactly what Thomas's demands have been. Doesn't need to ask him, so where are you in all of this, Thomas? How, how do you feel about it all? Doesn't need to do that at all. Jesus knows exactly what Thomas has said. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, first person he seems to address within the room after the general greeting, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. It's really don't be unbelieving, but be believing. The ESV translates it slightly better. Don't know what you think. Do you think that Thomas actually does it? Doesn't tell us, does it? Jesus tells him to put his hands into his side and so on. But I'm not sure that he does. Remember, we've said that part of John's gospel here is to emphasize seeing, seeing and believing. So, so I think maybe the hint is that Thomas says what he says without touching Jesus. He, he goes back in his own conditions. But, but what he says is highly significant. Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God. So, he's ascribing to Jesus divinity. He's saying, you are Lord, and you are God. You're my Lord, and you're my God. And, and really important here, notice that Jesus does not protest at this. He doesn't say, oh, that's too far, Thomas. God has really helped me to get where I am. The glory is due to Him. He does not say that. Every other time in the Bible, a Jew is treated in some sort of way in which they are in some way bowed down before or worshiped or something like that. They they protest. We actually saw it this morning as, as, as Cornelius falls before Peter. Peter says, get up, I'm only a man. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra, and the people think that they are gods, they're pagan people, and they think that they're gods, and they tear their clothes, and they say, men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you the good news that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God. You see, that's the normal and right response when a mere man is treated as a god. But Jesus takes it. Why? Why? Because he was God. He's the God-man. It's a really powerful indication of who he really is. But how does Thomas get to that stage? He sort of jumps over even where the other disciples are. He's had a week to think about it. He's turned over, presumably, all these things that Jesus has, has done in his head He's he's heard the testimony of the woman and his fellow apostles. It's clear that the tomb is empty. It's all building on him. And now he understands, my Lord and my God. Don Carson, again, really helpfully, suggests that part of what he maybe reflects on is the discussion that he had with him in John 14. It's only a week ago in the upper room. So you remember there, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. My father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Now then, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And then, in a way that we don't often spot, he then says, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, none of the disciples pick up on that. They don't understand. But maybe Thomas is thinking about, what does that mean? What does it mean that if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father? Does that mean that he's like him somehow? must mean more than that. Is he saying that he and the Father are one? Is he saying that he is God? You see, he's become a servant. He's a worshiper. From refusing to believe what the other disciples were telling him, he is now leading them in their understanding of who Jesus is. And he's leading us to, and so, you know, do you know what? If, if you're here and you're struggling and you think, all these other Christians, they're, they're so far ahead of me. They've got things so sorted. I, I'm, I'm struggling so much. Could it be that you could leapfrog so many people, and be that person who points others and say, do you know, have you seen this about Jesus? Do you see why we should be so confident of him? Do you see who he really is? I've come to understand that. God can do that in your life. He's become a servant. But Jesus is not finished with him, because if that's where it ended, then we would be justified in saying, well, do you know what? I I struggle too sometimes, but I wish I could have had what Thomas had. If I could do that, then everything would be okay. If I could stick my hands into his side and so on, then I wouldn't doubt. But that's not going to be our experience, is it? Because Jesus isn't on the earth. He's ascended into heaven. And Jesus knows that this is not going to happen for all who would believe after the ascension. They cannot see him like John did, or like the other apostles did, or the other witnesses of the resurrection. So, what's the plan for all these other people? What's the plan for us? And this is where we get to our third point, a servant, a a, a skeptic, a servant, and a sign. Thomas is a sign. You see, verse 9, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, that's how it was with Thomas, but it's not how Jesus plans it to be with us. We are those who will not see as he did. So we've got to shape our expectations. We've got to trust in something else? What is it that we are to trust in? How are we to believe? How are we to have our doubts allayed if these are the sorts of doubts that we have? Will you read on from verse 30? Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Many other signs. In other words, this was a sign. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So John tells us about Jesus appearing to Thomas, and he says, here are one of the stories that I am telling you so that you would believe. In other words, we are to believe the witness of those who were there. That's how we believe. That's how we believe. We believe their testimony. You see, this section is about a number of people who saw and believed, and we are to listen to their experience and their testimony, the miracles that Jesus did, especially His resurrection, and, and, and that's the model for us, so that we would also believe. And we, we might think, well, sorry, that's not really good enough for me. I need to see for myself. Well, in that case, there's not an awful lot that we can really know or be sure about, because there's so much that we believe that we've never seen for ourselves and won't. John Stott tells a, a lovely story about uh, seeing a, a, a particular bird in the Antarctic. He, 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 he was a keen bird watcher, John Stott. Uh, you might have known that. He was someone who traveled in different parts of the world and went off and watched uh, birds. And, and there was one bird that he was always keen to see in Antarctica, the snowy petrel and uh, he had heard about it because others had seen it he'd never seen it himself but eventually he traveled there and he got to see this this bird it's like it looks like a seagull i don't really know why he went to see see it all that way but anyway uh, there you go um, <clears throat> but but he didn't he didn't doubt that it existed before he saw it for himself he had heard the descriptions of other people that he trusted He knew that this bird existed, but then eventually he he saw it, and the only thing that changed after he saw it was that he had seen it with his own eyes. He didn't believe in it more strongly. He knew it existed beforehand. He knew it existed afterwards. He was still a believer before and after his own experience, and that's how it is to be with us, we are to listen to the eyewitnesses who tell us about Jesus. We're to determine if these are reliable accounts, and then, if so, we're to trust them. And in trusting them, we believe in the one that they tell us about. And, of course, the question arises, well, how can we trust them? How can we know if they're, they're really real? Were they people who made up these stories? They were ancient people. Did they really know what they saw? How could they they possibly be be reliable all these years later? Well, they don't need to be reliable all these years later. They only need to be reliable when they wrote it down. If it was true then, it's true now. And we've pointed out as we've looked at these stories of the resurrection that there are so many points to the fact that, that they are telling the truth. They told the story about their own failings. Even they didn't come out of it very well, but they told it anyway. Thomas was to become an important figure in the early church, taking the gospel to India. Do you, do you think he would have allowed himself to appear in the story in such a, a weak way if, if he was making this up? Or Peter, who denied Jesus three times, do you think he would have said, tell you what, let's, let's make up a story about me denying the Lord. If you were creating foundational documents, foundational documents for a new movement, you would make yourself at least reliable in the whole story. Then there's those little eyewitness details. Remember last Sunday morning, we we looked at the the, the, the fact that there were two disciples racing to the tomb, and and the church we said had struggled to understand what that was there for, and what people had had said all sorts of different suggestions as to why it was included. But it's probably there simply because it was an eyewitness detail. It happened. And what the literature scholars tell us is that that sort of way, if you had an English test to do and you had to do a piece of creative writing, you you would… imagine a scenario when you'd put in all sorts of little embellishing details to try and flesh it out. But that's a quite a modern thing to do. It wasn't done 2,000 years ago. These things are here because they happened. And then most importantly, as we've said, here are men who died for the story that they told. People die for religious things all the time but they don't die for, people, for things that they know to be false. And yet here are men who laid down their lives for things that they believe to be true. Only one of the apostles outside of Judas dies a natural death, John, exiled on Patmos. So if we're to believe, if we're struggling if we're to if we, if we're to believe, if 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 we're to find our doubts allayed, part of what we've got to do is we've got to do what John tells us to do. These are written so that you might believe, have faith. Got to read this book. Got to keep in it. If you are somebody who's sceptical about Christianity and you're thinking, could it be true? How would I know? Do I look at people around me? That's going to help you. But you've got to also look at this book. Engage with its message. Allow the stories of those who saw to impact your life. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. And the point of all of this is that we would be those people that Thomas became, skeptics to servants, doubters to worshipers, so that the the constant refrain of our life, whenever we think of Jesus, we were asking at the start, what words would we like to pop into other people's heads whenever people hear our names? doesn't really matter, does it? But what should come into our heads whenever we hear Jesus? Here's a good place to start. My Lord and my God. Let's pray. Lord, we we long to be confident in the position that Thomas came to. And we thank you that we are told about him in order that we might be so. Help each one of us, O Lord, not to doubt, but to confidently say, from our hearts, my Lord and my God, this day, and every day, amen.